Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from a podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California that, if I'm being honest, could use a bit of tidying, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Thank you for joining me as we take a long overdue look back at the most cutting-edge, up-to-the-minute new music releases from 40 years and four months ago. Hello, everyone. Uh, It's been a minute. I have continued falling further and further off the pace that uh, I don't know why it matters so much to me, but it gets increasingly weird to uh, talk about stuff that's not exactly 40 years old. Uh, It's fall is falling where we all are, and we're still back in the spring of new music releases from 1982, and uh, didn't have a guest come together this week either, so hey, here we are. I didn't take a look at the the new old stuff until I got up this morning, and um, there's, boy, is there enough for a show. There's so much for a show on old new music releases that here's what we're going to do. I've been kind of thinking about doing this for a while and the time has finally come. There's going to be two installments, yes, of new music releases, May 1982. There's over a dozen of noteworthy stuff, pretty much household name kinds of bands, and and in many cases songs, that we're going to talk about here on the pod, on the Tully show, and then sometime shortly, perhaps even after lunch today, I'll sit down and uh, and I'll go through even more new music releases that I, at least I find interesting. We can see if anybody else shares my enthusiasm for these insanely deep 40 year old new music, new release cuts, um, over on Patreon. So this show is the best of May, 1982. That show, which by the time you hear this, fingers crossed, by the time you hear this Tully show listeners, Tully Patreon people, will be able to get the rest of new music from May 1982 exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. For now, though, let's talk about let's talk about The Clash. I always like looking at the music news, the current music news events of the era, just to sort of contextualize things and refresh our, our minds of, of what was going on in the larger world outside of just shit being pressed into vinyl grooves at this time. There's not a whole lot that needs to be uh, rehashed or, or discussed, but what did catch my eye was like all clash related this is was seemingly a very the tumultuous time for the clash i think last time through is when i mentioned that uh joe strummer one of the co-lead one of co-front men co-singers of the clash disappeared and and some thought he may even be dead and instead it turned out he'd been running like the paris marathon does that ring a bell so that's going on and within a year max mick jones the other co-front man is going to be kicked out of the clash and 
this in this month, May 1982, the drummer of The Clash, Topper Heaton, uh, he, he will also be forced to leave the band. So there's only four guys in the band. And as far as I can tell, one of them didn't either disappear or get and run a marathon or get kicked out of the clash in 1982. We've seen this life cycle play out so many times with bands and we will continue to see it for as long as there are people, headstrong, young, idealistic, uncompromising artistic types that come together and there's like a marriage of convenience. Yeah, that guy fucking, I hate that one thing about him, but you know, he writes a fucking great song or the girls love him or he owns a fucking PA. So he's in the band and everybody gets along and puts their differences aside. And then you get success and you get money. And in the case of at least the drummer of the clash, you get lots and lots and lots of drugs and then things boil over and then everybody blows it up. And then, I don't know, 10 years later, you either broke enough or mature enough that you reconcile and then you go around playing the hits for the rest of your days or that is the end of it. And that is what happened with The Clash. To the best of my knowledge, I'm not a deep Clash guy. It's it's lame to admit to being a greatest hits guy for one of the seminal punk acts. And yet that's exactly what I, what I am. I don't know a ton about The Clash. I don't listen to any of their albums top to bottom but i feel pretty certain in saying that there never was a clash reunion i know joe strummer went off and did his stuff with varying degrees of success um which is usually a polite way of saying nobody it didn't wasn't successful at all he really did up what was that band he had near the end mescaleros or something like that people gave a shit people liked it and then Mick Jones obviously went off and did uh, Big Audio Dynamite and produced a bunch of people. He's featured, like, giving that... He literally just does a, uh, a uh-oh in that inimitable Mick Jones way on a very recently released song. I know, believe it or not, I'm talking about a song that came out in this actual decade by a, a group I love called The Avalanches. If you want to check it out, there's a terrific song called We Go On. And just having Mick Jones go, uh-oh, still after all these years is just, he's got one of the best uh-ohs in the biz to this day. So they went their separate ways and they and they had their success. And here we find them at the moment where it's, it, it's, it's reaching its logical conclusion. Here's what I think I know about The Clash. Here's what I'm kind of guessing. I'm probably right. They meet each other. They really like punk rock. They share political ideals and then they start banging out stuff and it's the right place right time they're leading the charge along with the sex pistols and the damned and people respond to it and then musically they they start to grow they start to evolve beyond that and personally i don't really respond to the early clash stuff i like them a lot less to be honest the pure punk stuff than the same stuff that like the damned or um, the sex pistols or the Ramones or the misfits were doing around that time. But they have something that the Ramones and the sex pistols didn't have. And uh, I guess Glenn Danzig did, which is that they had more, there was more to them than just, you know, three card, three chords and the truth one, four, five, let's go, let's go. And they developed into these really terrific songwriters and they're they're seen as the next big thing, and there's these attempts to break them in the states, and it's a really weird dance for them because they're supposed to be these hardcore militant political punks, and they can't be perceived to be 
you know, it's like they want to get big and their label desperately believes they can make them big, but they can't be perceived as like trying too hard to get big. So the album before this was a triple album. It's, it's you know, it's that's a, a hard commercial uh, proposition called Sandinista, and they'd already done a double album, London Calling. And this time around, I think this is their fifth album, Combat Rock, and they, again, record enough stuff. They have two main songwriters, so it's kind of easy to see how they were so prolific. They have a double album's worth of stuff, and I think this is one of the many things that caused tension in the band. Mick Jones wants to release all the songs and the long dance versions of everything, and um, I don't want to say Joe Strummer is therefore the sellout, but Joe Strummer is more in the camp with the record label of let's bring in the producer who does successful radio-ready acts. Let's have him trim this stuff down, trim out the less accessible songs, the songs that we think could work on the radio. Let's mix them so that because it's the way that you mix like where the vocals are, the volume of the vocals in regard to the guitars and the drums and stuff. Generally speaking, you have a different approach for something that people are going to listen to as an album and get stoned and get drunk listening to, or something that's going to sound really good in your mom's car radio, you know, so they decide to make the songs that they think can be successful singles as radio ready as possible. And to me, I think it's just kind of cool. I want to see a band evolve. It doesn't make, it's not the good stuff or the bad stuff. It's I, I, I I'm, by the end, they were making some singles that were radio ready. And I think it's cool that over the span, the arc of their creative collaboration, they did do the less accessible, less radio ready punk stuff. And then slowly morphed into where they ended up, which was like a, and I think the album has some more experimental cups, cuts, but the stuff that we get at the end is this radio ready stuff. And it's like, you did it, you proved you could succeed at all these different things in rock, and now you guys hate each other, and at least one of you has a, I'm going to say it again, an amazingly bad drug problem. So uh, let's blow this thing up, and let's never speak to each other ever again. And that's what happened. But not before they released Combat Rock. And there's two noteworthy songs for our purposes that everybody listening to this is probably familiar with. Should I Stay or Should I Go is uh, is a very much a Mick Jones song. And amazingly, I did not know this. This is a story really for another day, but I'll touch on it now. The song was released as a single. I mean, should I stay or should I go? They play it at like weddings now. My kids like that song. It was not a successful single. The song did not become successful for like eight years. And only because eight years later was featured in like a, like a Levi's ad, but they did have finally the clash had the big breakthrough single rock the casbah and this song the music video had a lot to do with it i don't know if if you're about the same age as me i'm 45 i remember the music video very very well because it was very early mtv half performance the band miming their song and half very low budget kind of silly sketch in this case it was i just gave it a quick peek before i started rolling here i still don't understand what sort of point they're trying to make but I'm fairly certain nobody would make this music video nowadays. I'm very certain of that, regardless of what the actual political insinuation was. The video shows a guy who's dressed like a sheik, like a Middle Eastern sheik guy, getting in a car with a dude who is dressed as 
um, uh, an Orthodox Jewish person, like Hasidic, and they go and get a bunch of booze and start drinking together and partying in the car and they end up at a Clash concert and just, uh, it's not particularly like hateful ethnic stereotypes, but they are ethnic stereotypes. And I, I'm positive that that is, uh, it was very much of its time. It would never, ever happen nowadays. But I think that's the way these things worked. Having a silly music video was sadly kind of half the battle in 1982 when MTV was um, reaching its real zenith um, but the song itself is also an undeniable pop song so here's the story they have two main songwriters i know the bass player paul simon and i never learned how to say his name he wrote um guns of brixton which is one of the best clash songs i don't think the drummer who i believe his name is topper heaton i don't think he was um, a very active songwriter, but he was at this point an extremely active heroin user. They said he was spending like a hundred pounds a day on heroin, which was, that's a lot of money nowadays. It was really a lot of money at that point. And indeed they finished the album. So he wrote rock the Casbah and he's not in the music video for rock the Casbah because he was fired as soon as the album was done. He was, he, they could not work with him anymore and could not take him on the road. Um, but, but somehow, some way in, in his heroin addled brain, one day while the rest of the band were off doing God knows what clash drummer Topper Heaton sat down, started tinkling some keys on a piano, liked what he had come up with. So he laid down a little drum, he laid down a little bass and, and even put down some, some vocals or melody ideas. And by the time the rest of the band came back that day, they did not need to make many changes or embellishments to this song that their heroin-addicted drummer had just come up with. Another band who definitely benefited in a major way from the MTV effect was, of course, Duran Duran. I feel like they're sort of the poster children for the bands who uh, succeeded, I think some people believe, almost entirely because all of a sudden it wasn't just about what you sounded like, what you looked like, and the way you presented your band visually became as important, if not in some cases maybe even more important than the music man. And there's no denying that MTV was critical, instrumental in breaking Duran Duran in the States. So at this point in May of 82, they're up to their second album, Rio. Title track is on there, uh, almost needless to say. They had already made their first album. It has, this is planet Earth. I don't, everybody knows that now, right? I don't believe that did a whole lot in the States. And indeed, the second Duran Duran album wasn't doing much here. I'm assuming most people are listening to this in America wasn't doing a lot here either until they made the music video for Hungry Like the Wolf. And that is what catapulted the band. You know, I do think this, this stuff holds up pretty well. I'm not a massive Duran Duran fan, but I think uh, their greatest hits hold up, they, they measure up pretty well alongside lots of other bands 
who uh, I think at the time were seen as a little bit more credible. I think Duran Duran's actually like a real band with real musicians. Simon LeBon's not the greatest singer ever, but uh, they, they, they got chops, they got tunes. It also didn't help that they were pretty good looking guys and they had very good looking girls in their music videos. Now, Duran Duran were a really big deal here in the States and in the mainstream pop world, the world over. I don't believe the same can be said for Roxy Music. I think Roxy Music were always a little bit more of a European thing, a little bit more of an underground thing. And yet, to me, it's always seemed fairly obvious. I think this is kind of a known thing that if Duran Duran were really modeled on any band, it was Roxy Music, and if Simon Le Bon was modeled on any front man, it was Brian Ferry of Roxy Music, who's one of these guys who's just, um, he's, you know, he's not as famous as the super cool legends of rock, the Bowies and stuff like that, but on the next tier down, I think he is considered by people in the know as one of the all-time epitome of rock and roll suave cool and I, I personally, I don't know how much time you spent with Roxy Music. I, I, I loved the idea of Roxy Music. I wanted to love Roxy Music. It's one of these bands that I plunked down my penny and I got the greatest hits from Columbia House at some point. And a lot of it to me is just kind of like there. I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's just kind of atmospheric and I get it. It's cool, but it's almost too cool. It's like a little remote and inaccessible. Uh, and it's very like kind of seventies and early eighties in a way that to me wasn't 100% appealing except for two songs. And it turns out that both of those songs are on the album that Roxy music put out in 1982. This would be their eighth and final studio album and I, I think most people would agree that they went out on top. The title track, Avalon, it's a beautiful song. Uh, check it out if, uh, if you don't know it. But this is the song. Maybe you didn't hear this until you heard it in Lost in Translation. Personally, I have very fond memories of a bar I used to go to that played this song. It only had like 15 songs in the jukebox. So I used to drink to this next song right here a lot. And it is terrific. Morning. I definitely do not recommend dabbling in cocaine. But if you do, I definitely recommend doing it while you listen to More Than This by Roxy Music, a brand new music release in May of 1982. So the new romantic thing is going on and people who are acting kind of like vaguely robotic, emotionless uh, Englishmen who don't open their mouth all the way when they sing and have lots of rouge on their cheekbones, that stuff is getting really, really big right now. And we've heard from Duran Duran and Roxy Music inspired a lot of that stuff on their way out, taking their final studio album, Bow. And also here comes 
modern English. They fit into this scene as well. Fun fact, this song is a quintessential 80s song. It would not actually become a hit until modern English re-recorded this song in, oh, I was like, 89 or 1990, I think it, I think it was. Um, but this is, this is 1.0 attempt at uh, one of the, at a world, what would later be a worldwide hit, the classic from modern English. It's almost hard to hear the differences between that and the way more successful version. I think the the vocals sound a little bit more talk singy, a little bit more Ringo Starry to my ears. Why was that not a success? I, how did that not work in 1982? We may never know. As someone who can never say no to a good musical car crash doing a little rubbernecking, I checked out the um, the reviews, the reception to this album. Uh, After the Snow is the name of the uh, modern English album from 1982. The reviewer warned his readers, warned them that I Melt With You was completely unrepresentative of the album and uh, said, if nothing else, the album provides some offbeat if not unintentionally amusing listening. So you know what? That just got added to the playlist for the Patreon May 1982 B-Sides New Releases show that I'm going to be, uh, that will be up by the time you hear this. If you are as morbidly curious as I am, I will see you there. One more song from the sort of uh, alternative new wave crossing over into the mainstream world. Another song that I, th- I don't know that it was um, very, very successful at the at the time. I think it sort of slowly permeated the culture since 1982. Um, Bow Wow Wow is, that's a one-hit wonder, right? Can anybody name two songs by Bow Wow Wow? I can't. But everybody knows this one. I did not know this was produced by Kenny Laguna, who uh, continues to this day to be, I mean, like one half of Joan Jett. He he and she have been creatively and professionally uh, attached at the hip for, I think, just about forever, ever since she's been solo anyway. But on the side, Kenny also produced an EP for Bow Wow Wow, which produced this classic song. Indeed, that song did not even break the top 40. It barely scraped the top 50, says here, on the American pop charts upon its release. I don't know that there was any single catalyst, you know, being featured on a movie soundtrack or, or whatever that broke it through to the mainstream. Um, I think it's just the fact that it's really, really good and fun and infectious. And that kind of drumbeat 
that like almost like marching band kind of thing that was definitely in the air around then adam ant like pretty much all his songs all his big songs had that kind of that kind of drum beat and listening to it you can hear can't you the joan jett connection not that that would have been a song that she would have sang but it's i wouldn't think of bow wow wow and joan jett existing in adjacent music musical universes but uh i think i think you can see the connection the reason why i i I love doing this show i look forward to doing these shows i keep every now and again i look into the new music releases from a given month 40 years ago and i'm like yeah you know i we actually not that long ago right i I did an episode that bunched together a couple of months because it was sort of a there was a fallow period in the beginning of 82 but it just freaking blows my mind like every single time and this isn't to to talk shit about new music there's there's plenty of good new music coming out but just my goodness, the volume and variety of stuff that was being churned out by so many great artists on a fucking monthly basis in 19, in, in, in just this whole era that I've been doing this, the like, I've been doing these episodes, I think it started in late 79, and we're still going strong, and I don't see that abating anytime soon. Like, when is it, is there gonna be a lull coming along here? Is 84, I don't a lot of people think 84 is there's that guy. I interviewed a guy on this show who made a pretty compelling case that 84 is the best year in music ever is 83 going to suck. There's so much stuff, so many interesting stories and just so much great music to revisit and to hear with fresh ears in the context of the other stuff that was coming out at the time. And that includes what was then new music from Stevie Wonder. It's cheating a little bit because he put out, I think, a double greatest hits album, Stevie Wonder's original Music Aquarium. But it's not cheating because he put four new songs on his greatest hits double album, and two of them were really, really big hits. And this is one of them. When I hear you on the phone, your sweet sexy voice turns my hair all the way on. Just the mention of your name Seems to do head and say Girl, do I do What you do When I do My love to you Baby like not even my favorite stevie wonder song i think it's one of it's it's not what i don't think what immediately comes to mind for anybody when you think of stevie wonder's greatest greatest hits but so tasteful so musical so joyful so accessible and this is this is my stuff uh, you know, pop music has always been a little bit of a dirty word as if it's supposed to be beneath legitimate musical artists. But that's something that I noticed as a, a through line from this month's new music releases is how many people were making really respectable, I'm going to say great music. That's my thing, stuff that is both great and just good 
fun, listenable. Squeeze were uh, kind of in the same boat as the Clash, I gather. Squeeze was always like, there was, it was like an all-star team. There was almost too much talent. It was almost inevitable that people were going to want to go in different directions and do their own thing and pursue solo glory. And why does that guy want his song to be a single? My song should be the single kind of shit. I don't know the inner shenanigans of Squeeze. I don't really care. But uh, I, I've never been my favorite band. They always in a somewhat similar way to how I feel about Roxy Music. A little too too cool for school. A little hard for me to personally connect to. But, I mean, the songs are are undeniable and the catalog is deep. And even as things were falling apart for Squeeze, they cranked out this classic right here. Can I tell you something? I just, uh, as I, as I say, one of the fun things about doing these shows is you listen to stuff you know by heart with fresh ears. I always, always, always thought he was singing, and I'm out with her friend, which makes a bit, you know, which makes sense in its own way. I don't know he's out with a friend. He's not <laughs> a total spiteful piece of shit bastard. It turns out he's out with a friend. Okay, he's not out with. Her friend. Uh, it's it's a great lyric and a great song, uh, whatever it is that he's actually saying there. And uh, and that there's there's yet more really, really pristine, really credible pop music to be discussed from, yes, this same month, May of 1982, Alan Parsons. What do I know about Alan Parsons? I know that his his sort of claim to fame was that he worked at Abbey Road Studios as, I think, a very young person and was uh, obviously did not produce the Beatles, but was like an engineer. He, he was there. He was up in the mix. He was actually, you know, in the room and touching stuff when the Beatles made classic albums and also when they started Apple Records and was, was Badfinger the band that they signed He's an Abbey Road guy, and that that credit goes a long way. And so he did this thing for uh, an extended period of time. For all I know, he's still making records. Alan Parsons would do the Alan Parsons Project, and he must have been a pretty bad singer because he never sang on his own stuff. Every time he'd bring in like fresh vocalists and fresh musicians and come up with a fresh concept for what he's doing this time around. Um, and uh, for me personally, it's always been a little better in theory than it is in practice, at least at parts. It got kind of prog rocky. You may or may not be familiar with a piece of music <clears throat> that's called Sirius, spelled the same as the Constellation and the satellite radio company I used to work for, not like the opposite of uh, joking. And that is was the... Uh, it, that instrumental was played during the player introductions 
of the Bulls games during the Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson, Scottie Pippen heyday and continues to this day to be played at the beginning of Chicago Bulls home games. So this piece of music that's on this album is like synonymous with Michael Jordan and the Bulls dynasty. And if I'm not mistaken, because I have listened to this album, that very sort of mystical. If you know it, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they use it for the pregame of of a, um, well, I'll just, I'm talking about it enough. Let me just play it. I mean, you get the idea. Very, very 80s, very ominous, very foreboding, very player introduction-y kind of thing. They started using it then, they use it to this day, but that track, Serious, segues on the album Eye in the Sky to the title track, which somehow, some way, I missed until a few years ago, and now it is one of my favorite songs, uh, definitely one of my favorite songs, old songs that I have uh, discovered looking back, and kind of just one of my favorite songs, period. I am the eye in the sky No, I had stopped dabbling in cocaine by the time I heard that song, but uh, <clears throat> I've got a feeling, let's just say, much like Roxy Music, if, and I don't recommend it, but if you find yourself dabbling with bumps, try throwing on both the uh, Roxy Music more than this song and that classic from the Alan Parsons Project, Eye in the Sky. Of course, uh, I don't want to pretend that everything that came out in 1982 was a pristine, professional, credible classic. There's always going to be a little bit of uh, crap might be a strong word, but uh, I don't know. Maybe, what do you th Where are you guys on air supply? I was tied to a heartache. That was the heartbreak, but now that I found you, even the nights are Yep, 1982, Mom Rock at its finest, Air Supply. I think they were up to like their fourth album, and if they'd ever been good in the first place, the wheels were kind of coming off. Uh, nonetheless, they still enjoyed pretty massive success with Even the Nights Are Better. Also in that album-oriented, mainstream, not dangerous at all rock arena was 38 special which is a band that i think has kind of grown on me a little bit let's take another listen to uh you'll know this song right here from 38 special also came out in may of 82 
I'm not going to defend that. I like it a lot better than air supply. I'll tell you that. Such a time capsule of something that was. I don't know. I don't know how to uh, crystallize into a couple of words what that little subgenre of completely harmless guitar pop was. Because it's not. I mean, it's power pop, but it's not. Doesn't sound like a lot of other power pop bands because of those like really manly vocals i bet that guy had like frizzy hair and a beard just guessing but i'm probably right like did those guys do the baywatch theme song because it's whatever or no actually uh hasselhoff probably did that right yeah it's sort of like 80s hasselhoff rock i've got a soft spot for it but i'm certainly not going to uh defend it <clears throat> meanwhile one of my favorite is somebody again who loves a good musical train wreck who loves a little uh, light schadenfreude, one of my favorite parts of doing this look back, is seeing the bands who have reached the end of the road and are grasping at straws as they try to recapture their former glory. And I don't want to laugh at Blondie. Blondie's really cool. Debbie Harry's really cool. And what and I don't, I'm not trying to be a dick when I say this, considering the fact that she had very limited vocal ability. What they were able to do, the the number of really fun pop songs that they made, she's totally the prototype for Gwen Stefani, right? And Madonna, right? Like, both of them, I can draw a real easy line. It's, and it's funny, because Gwen Stefani and Madonna sit in two slightly different places in the culture, but I think each of their most obvious antecedent is Debbie Harry, and I'm not really sure who... There's not such an obvious antecedent for Debbie Harry herself. She's kind of an original and made success in punk and disco. And, you know, she's the first person who rapped on a successful radio song. And Blondie's just a good, fun band. But I think they were one of these bands that very much like Madonna would be as an act a couple years later, prided themselves on always being on the cutting edge, one step ahead of where when the culture gets there, Blondie's there waiting for them. And Blondie is looking at the writing on the wall and punk is becoming new wave and disco is passe. And so what do they do? Debbie Harry puts on a gigantic blonde wig and the rest of the guys kind of look like proto hair metal dudes. And I, I know this has come up before on this show. Blondie basically go full bore 80s and it does not work. This would be the last Blondie album until they reunited in the very late 90s and musically it is a bit of a dud but I think it's just interesting because it's Blondie and also because I have an interest in rejected James Bond theme songs for some weird reason that'll be a whole other episode someday for sure let me know if you know of any of those I've got a list of uh, of a couple um, where the band was like uh, either was hired or at least was thinking they could get the song in a Bond movie and it didn't work out. Um, Aha did one of those. Although actually it, their their song, I recently saw uh, Aha perform with my kids at the Hollywood Bowl uh, like a couple weeks ago. And they did their song, The Living Daylights, which as they pointed out on stage, was a Bond theme everywhere in the world except here in America. Blondie. I think wrote and definitely recorded a song called For Your Eyes Only, which was rejected. And instead, Sheena Easton, I think, did that. It's not one of the better Bond songs, and I'm not a Bond song fan in general. So Blondie uh, instead released it themselves on their, the final album of their classic era. The album was called The Hunter, and here's the song that would have been in Bond. Don't try to 
I mean, I can see where they were going with that anyway. It's sort of Blondie meets bond E. And music stylistically, that's that's no small feat to pull that off. Um, it's not the greatest song. The production, I think, lets it down. It's sort of muddy. It's hard to imagine a song, that recording, sitting on the radio alongside other stuff that was happening in 1982. But even if the production had been pristine and as radio-ready as The Clash is, I don't, I don't know that that was really going anywhere. I think that was just, uh, it was a wrap for Blondie. They were, they were of um, and essentially tied to a time and a place, late 70s New York, and that little era was drawing to a close. And so creatively was Blondie. I think this is also the end of an era for Kiss. I think within a year to max they were going to take the makeup off and then keep it off for the majority of the 80s but leading the charge on that was drummer peter chris who was still with the band at this point he has well-documented substance abuse issues but they didn't that didn't stop him from churning out a couple of pretty terrible solo albums in addition to his kiss drumming duties and he puts out this album i know this has come up on the show before as well i forget in what context he puts out an album that I would say was poorly received, but I don't, it, it wasn't even released in the U.S. Think about how big Kiss had been, and I think still were in 82, and their drummer put out, and uh, his first solo album was when they all, the four of them did, each did a solo album that all came out on the same day, and then he did a second one that I think w w at least got released, but fared pretty poorly. And he, he stuck with it, and his commercial reward for that was an album that charted for two weeks in Norway. And uh, if you listen to it, it's not too hard to see why. Man, there was no place for that on the soundtrack to like a like a like a like a Rocky Three or something like that. Whatever you may have thought of "Caught Up in You" from Thirty Eight Special sounds pretty good by comparison now, doesn't it? Uh, already in nineteen eighty two, a makeupless Peter Chris and a song entitled "Let It Go." All right, folks, that pretty much concludes the the noteworthy stuff that normal people might give a shit about from may of 1982 so i'm gonna wrap up our proceedings uh here, here's a little sneak preview next month may so we're looking at june of 1982 among other music releases we will be taking a look at a pete townsend solo album and the album was called all the best cowboys have chinese eyes I think I kind of know what he was getting at there, but once again, uh, some things 
that happened in 82 needs stay in 1982. I will remind you, I'm doing a whole other show. Actually, one, two, I'm not going to count them here, but there's like 20 like 20 other new music releases from May of 1982 that I'm going to be whisking through on my Patreon. We're talking about Rick James, Genesis, Kansas, Bootsy Collins, Cher Goes New Wave, Thomas Dolby, whatever the hell, (laughs) the unintentional comedy of the modern English album tracks, that and much more. Uh, By the time you hear this, it'll be there. Patreon dot com slash mike tully patreon.com slash mike tully in addition to several million other patreon exclusive podcasts and fun i will leave you with this the frank zappa in 1982 had his one fluke single hit song which was barely even a song a pure novelty record valley girl his daughter does an impression of valley girl lingo and it and it takes on a life of its own um uh, and, and that song was attached to this album. But uh, as you probably know, if you know anything about Frank Zappa, that song was uh, is not representative of what he did in general. He's very musical, sort of more of a composer than just a, a rock, pop, instrumental musician. In many quarters to this day, considered a genius. Wasn't for me when I first heard it as a kid. Still not for me now, but he. This is this is prime Zappa, and uh, make of this what you will. I will leave you with a song from his May 1982 album, Shri- uh, Sh- <laughs> "Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch." Enjoy this to the extent that you can. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Whether it's on Patreon or here, I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Hey.